Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Hi everyone, welcome back to Tales of History and Imagination. Tonight's tale is something a little bit different from what I had planned. I'm going to need a couple more days to get that episode together. So today's tale is about some of the animals who share this planet with us. It's a collection of short tales. Content warning, this tale will mention animal cruelty on a couple of occasions. Part 1. Poll. On winning the American presidency in 1828, Andrew Jackson bought a companion for his wife Rachel, an African grey parrot named Poll. Mr. and Mrs. Jackson were Washington outsiders, with few friends in the capital. The election of 1828 had been a particularly brutal one, with a great deal of mudslinging by both sides. And this all took a toll on Mrs. Jackson. For one, the opposition revealed the Jacksons were married after Rachel's first husband had filed for divorce, but before a court had granted that divorce. This technically made Rachel, shock horror, a bigamist. It was also later revealed that when the Jacksons married, they did so in a town, both as Protestants, that only recognized Catholic marriages. Was the incoming first lady a bigamist or a lady of ill repute, living in sin with the incoming president? Both Mr. and Mrs. Jackson, if indeed they were so, were gravely concerned Rachel would be shunned by Washington society. President Jackson, a man on a mission, would be far too busy penny-pinching to get rid of the national debt, fighting duels and, well, having a lot of Native Americans murdered over their land to keep his better half company. Paul the Parrot would be splendid company for his wife. Sadly, this all became a moot point when a heavily stressed Rachel died of a massive heart attack before her husband even took office. President Jackson decided, now a widower, he would raise Paul the Parrot himself. The last thing I want to do is humanize such a monster as America's seventh president. But having lost both his wife and his adopted Creek Indian son, Lincoya, in the same year, he must have found comfort having such a friend as Paul. I get a picture in my mind's eye of Andrew and Paul, chatting away well into the night, out on the south portico, sharing a platter of cheese between them, from that ridiculous big wheel someone gifted Jackson on his inauguration. Now, of course, it goes without saying, and Andrew Jackson could not have helped himself. The man swore like a trooper. One presumes he found few things funnier than hearing Paul parroting rude things back to him. Old Hickory remained in office until 1837. He passed on June 8, 1845, of dropsy and heart failure. Surrounded by friends and family, he slipped away after imparting one final message to his beloved. Oh, do not cry. Be good, children, and we will all meet in heaven. On Sunday, June 10th, 1845, 3,000 mourners gathered 
at Andrew Jackson's home to pay their last respects to the man. It was a solemn, dignified affair, until a lone voice broke the silence. Someone was swearing up a storm back there. Paul the parrot, visibly distressed, had to be escorted from the ceremony, cussing up a blue streak as she went. Part 2. Topsy was a good elephant. Topsy, it has often been said, was a very naughty elephant. I believe the rehabilitation of her good name is long overdue. Born around 1875, she was kidnapped while still a baby from an unnamed Southeast Asian jungle. From there, she was trafficked to the USA. Bought by Adam Forpore, Topsy was exhibited across the country in his traveling circus. Initially under the claim she was the first elephant born in the United States. In those early days, Topsy was a good elephant. She performed just as a circus elephant should. But one fateful day in 1902, a drunk named James Fielding Blount snuck into the elephant's enclosure. The exact nature of the incident is unknowable. All the witnesses were pachyderms, but it appears Blount got belligerent with the animals. It's been suggested he threw sand at them, yelled at them, and attempted to feed Topsy a lit cigarette. Whatever happened exactly, Topsy lost her call and crushed Blount to death. Now one thing everyone should know about old-timey circus owners is that they are generally liars. Their giants are always listed taller than they really are, and little people always shorter. Occasionally, two developmentally challenged brothers from Ohio will get rebranded as wild men from Borneo. Taxidermy monstrosities combining half a fish and half a monkey get passed off as a Fiji mermaid. Fourpaw's successors were very quick to rebrand Topsy as the bad girl of the pack. One dead bystander? Not a chance. Topsy murdered a dozen men, at least. Now, of course, anyone who's ever seen a professional wrestling match will know what a good heel turn can do. A good villain generates heat, and in the circus it appears it is much the same. Fourpaw's circus saw a huge rise in ticket sales, but now, whenever Topsy was let out before the crowd, she was greeted with jeers and physical abuse. One day, a man hit her with a stick. Topsy struck back, grabbing him with her trunk and roughly tossing the man to the ground. June 1902, Topsy was sold to Coney Island's Sea Lion Park. The park's owner, Paul Boyton, had an awful summer season due to other amusement parks opening with newer, more daring rides. And a particularly rainy year, so he packed his trunk and, well said goodbye to the amusement park. Two feckless villains, Frederick Thompson and Elmer Dundee, bought the place, relaunching it as Luna Park. In October 1902, our villains, Thompson and Dundee, hired a sadistic moron named William Alt to look after Topsy. She was put to work as a pack animal, pulling a children's log ride. Didn't take long for Alt to seal Topsy's fate. 
Topsy refused to pull a log ride. So one day, Alt stabbed Topsy with a pitchfork. A passerby called out to a police officer to save Topsy from being murdered. When the police arrived, Alt unharnessed Topsy, who in turn ran off through the streets of Coney Island. It didn't take long to brand her Dash for Freedom a rampage. Thompson and Dundee announced they were relaunching the park soon after. To celebrate, they planned to hold a free, public execution of their notoriously bad elephant. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals stepped in, hoping to save Topsy. All they managed was to get the execution downgraded to a ticket holders only event. On 3rd of January 1903, Topsy, more sinned against than sinning, was executed. She was fed cyanide-laced carrots and then electrocuted. To ensure her complete overkill, her body was then hung by the neck before the jeering crowd. Thomas Edison's movie company was there to capture the execution. And though he's often accused of personally carrying out the execution, he played no direct part in the wanton murder of Topsy the Elephant. Part 3. The Rescuers when I look back on our early encounters with our gorilla cousins, I'm struck by how monstrous European explorers thought them. Paul de Chaillou, the man widely accepted as having discovered the gorilla, mentions them several hundred times in his works. These mentions all either vilify the great ape, or relate to humans, justifiably in his view, shooting them. Now, of course, there was no way De Chaillou was the first man to ever see a gorilla. But Western colonizers were, as a rule, mostly terrible at collecting native history and narratives. European writers, well, at least not me, may not know the first time a human met a gorilla. But we all know of a likely much earlier encounter than Paul de Chaillou's. On an unspecified date in the 5th century BC, the Carthaginian explorer Hanover Navigator set sail from modern-day Tunisia. His mission? To explore sub-Saharan Africa for other cultures to trade with, and to discover the source of all the West African gold that made its way to the Mediterranean world. No one in Carthage knew what or who he might find as he sailed beyond the Pillars of Hercules with 60 ships of 50 oars. Hanno's fleet sailed on, establishing half a dozen settlements as they went. At one point, they met a group of nomads they called the Lixitae. Several Lixitae chose to join his fleet. As with the Tahitian navigator Tupaya, who became essential to James Cook as an interpreter with the Maori, the Lixitae similarly were essential in communicating with the local tribes they encountered. They sailed down the coast and met both friendly and aggressive tribes. They saw dense forests and towering mountains. They discovered vast rivers where crocodiles and hippopotami bathed. One day they passed under the shadow of an erupting volcano and nobody dared to make landfall there. Somewhere, perhaps in Senegal or Sierra Leone, maybe even as far down as Cameroon, the explorers came to an island. The island was big enough that it had a lake on it, and in the middle of that lake, a smaller island. 
Hanno heard talk of a tribe of wild, extremely hairy humans who lived there. When he asked the name of these people, the locals told him the Gorilli. Hanno made landfall and pursued the tribe of Gorilli inland. The Gorilli climbed the hills, throwing stones back down at the Carthaginians. The three Gorilli women were captured, subdued, and taken onto one of the ships. The women were far too strong for the Carthaginians, so they were murdered and flayed for their hides. Little is certain in this random and horrifying tale, but was this an early contact with our gorilla cousins? And if so, I find myself asking if the surviving gorilla men, women and children, were heavily traumatised by this early contact. Now the tale which makes me particularly wonder about that allegedly took place in Olamza, I'm probably mispronouncing that terribly, a commune in the south of Cameroon. In 1997, a report made its way into several French-language newspapers that a tribesman named Natsama Ondo returned home with a caged baby gorilla. That night, around 60 gorillas emerged from the jungle. Hunters stepped out with rifles, firing shots into the air. This spooked the gorillas, who scattered back into the jungle. But the following night, they returned, hollering and banging on the doors and windows of the commune. The next morning, Natsama Ondo was summoned into the chief's house. The chief was furious with Ondo for causing him to lose sleep. He ordered him to release the captive immediately. The baby gorilla was uncaged and immediately made for the jungle. The tribe of gorilla rushed out to scoop up the child, and the victorious gorilla tribe returned into the jungle singing what was, for all intents and purposes, their victory song. Part 4. The Sea Monster The following chapter will be a quick one, as I couldn't find as much as I'd like on this one. Our destination? The waters of the Bosphorus Strait. Our time frame, the 6th century AD, during the reign of the Emperor Justinian the Great. I should begin this chapter by pointing out sperm whales are all kinds of smart. 2021 analysis of whalers' logbooks showed that within two years of whaling ships arriving off the coast of America, the sperm whale had developed several tactics to avoid them. They were thought to be strategizing with one another over many miles and teaching their young how not to get killed. The kill rate on sperm whales very quickly plummeted by 58%. While most sperm whales played the avoidance game, a small number took whalers head on, such as one giant bull who sank the Essex in November 1820, thousands of miles west of Ecuador. This sinking inspired Herman Melville to write Moby Dick. The sinking of the Anne Alexander, 3,000 miles out from Peru, just months after Moby Dick was released in 1851, was another stunning case of self-defense. Melville jotting down, Ye gods, what a commentator is this Anne Alexander whale. What he has to say is short and pithy, and very much to the point. I wonder if my evil art has raised this monster. Centuries earlier, an ornery leviathan, known locally as Porthyrius, 
terrorized the Byzantines for nigh on fifty years. Procopius of Caesarea, the last great historian of the ancient world, mentions the giant in passing in his histories. We know Porphyrius came and went, spending long periods of time elsewhere. But whenever the whale returned, it smashed boats with impunity, terrorizing local sailors. Justinian ordered his generals to work out how to trap the beast, but Porphyrius was far too smart for the general. Over the years, it was just accepted Porphyrius would arrive, wreck several boats, drown a number of Byzantines, and then leave, until one day, while chasing porpoises in the Black Sea, it accidentally beached itself. Locals ran out, ropes in hand, and dragged the beast inland, before they fetched their weapons. This grand, old, though admittedly cantankerous whale was beaten to death by the locals. Those people would later face a plague, famine, and a year without a summer, in what came to be known as the worst year in human history. But that day, and likely for many days after, they rejoiced. Okay, so one final short tale to round this one out. This time we find ourselves in the Argonne Forest, a mountainous, heavily wooded region, around 200 kilometers east of Paris, France. The date, October 2nd, 1918. On the edge of the forest, the US 77th Division, a group of around 540 fighting men, mostly from New York. Any moment now, they will descend into the woods, flanked by the French on their left and the American 92nd Infantry Division on their right. Due to poor communications, they went in, unaware the other units were being pushed back by a heavy German counterattack. All alone, they fought their way in, capturing Hill 198. The division must have felt quite accomplished by this, till their commander, Major Charles Whittlesey, realised it was far too quiet out there. They soon realized they were all alone, under heavy fire, and they were completely surrounded. Things were looking dire for the 77th Division. The Germans had taken the forest early in the war, giving them ample time to fortify the land and map out the area. They had the far greater numbers, and unlike the 77th, were at no risk of running out of ammunition or supplies. More than a third of their division soon labelled the Lost Battalion, would be killed in the Argonne Forest over the following six days. Another 150 either went missing or were taken captive. The remainder, cut off from their allies, and without modern communication, had to just dig in and hope for the best. For days, under constant sniper fire and the occasional enemy charge, the Lost Battalion just hung in there, Whittlesey attempted to send a couple of runners out, but every single time they were shot down, but they still had one card left to play. Pigeons have played a role in several wars across time. Ancient military geniuses from Cyrus the Great to Hannibal to Julius Caesar all used them to communicate over vast distances. From ancient Olympians sending announcements back home in the 8th century BC to 8th century AD, Islamic traders sending word back from China. 
From Reuters flying news reports in, in a pre-telegraph world, to New Zealand's Great Barrier Island setting up a pigeongram mail service, to Auckland City as late as 1897. The pigeon has been a worthy friend and ally to humankind. Much faster than a human, they could soar as fast as 60 miles per hour with the wind behind them, and as such were a far more sensible option than sending more men out only to be shot to pieces. With the German forces now close to double their original number, a pigeon was sent off. It carried a note, many wounded, we can't evacuate. German snipers saw the bird coming and shot it down. A second bird followed, this time with a note. Men are suffering, can support be sent? This bird too was blown out of the skies. Soon after, the ground shook with the heavy thud of American artillery. They knew the lost battalion was in there and intended to get them back safe and sound. Unfortunately, their bombs were falling in the vicinity of the lost battalion and racking up more casualties. The artillery corps believed they would be on the southern slopes as planned, not realising they were on the northern slopes of Hill 198 when the Germans pinned them down. The only upside to being bombed into oblivion by their own was the Germans were now keeping a safe distance. Sooner or later, however, they would all either be killed by their own or overrun once the shelling stopped. Major Whittlesey called for one more pigeon to be sent out ASAP. Enter Cher Ami. Cher Ami, meaning dear friend in French, was a male homing pigeon donated to the 77th Division by English pigeon fanciers. At six months of age, he was, like many a human soldier sent off into battle, little more than a child. Like a lot of these kids, he too had seen far too much carnage. This would be his twelfth mission. A note was attached to his leg advising of their position, and Cher Ami was sent out. German snipers, as they had the others, spotted the pigeon, shooting him out of the sky. Unlike the other pigeons, Cher Ami struggled to get back up, took flight again. He dodged and weaved enemy gunfire, and arrived back at base 25 minutes later, much the worse for wear, he'd lost an eye, and had a nasty chest wound, and had all but lost his right leg. He was still in possession of that note, stating, We are along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. Soon after, 194 men were subsequently rescued. Owing their lives to share me, they insisted surgeons operate on the pigeon. They did so, saving his life. Cher Ami was one of a hundred thousand pigeons to serve in World War I across all sides. He was very nearly one of twenty thousand to die on the battlefield. He survived his injuries for a while and became one of only thirty-five pigeons to be honoured with a medal across both world wars. Winning a French Croix de Guerre medal for his bravery. He returned to America a bona fide war hero, but sadly passed on June 13th, 1919, having never fully recovered from his injuries.
Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice. Share the episode, as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.